This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario, or sorry, our public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, has admitted that the likelihood of successfully reintegrating ISIS fighters into our country is pretty remote. Uh, what do we do with returning ISIS fighters? Let's bring in Lauren Dawson, professor at the University of Waterloo, director of TSAS, Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society, and on the line with us now. Hello, Lauren. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, pleased to be here. So uh, when we hear of ISIS fighters, we, we, we've been dealing with this problem for the last several years now, uh, many concerned over those that are going back and forth. What does it say when the safety minister, uh, safety minister says that rehabilitation is pretty remote? How does that change the discussion? Well, I mean, I think he's saying that just because it's sort of the politically appropriate thing to say to, to cover his bases. And, and in current conditions in Canada, it might be somewhat remote because we don't really have the programming in place in a full-fledged sense that some other countries in the world do, like Denmark, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Uh, but we do have some programming in place in Canada that might be useful in this regard. I mean, the issue that everyone's debating right now is, is you know, how many do we have back? And I think I would say the number is a lot smaller than what the government's saying. It's probably like maybe a dozen individuals that have actually come back from Syria and Iraq, right? Individuals really coming back from a combat zone. And... Um, when they come back, we have a couple of options, right? We can, of course, try and arrest them and prosecute them, but uh, all the authorities will tell you that that's a really difficult job and that it'll be very, very hard to actually successfully prosecute most of these individuals for reasons we can talk about. So you can't really get at it by arresting them all and putting them all in jail. We can't surveil them forever either because it's astronomically expensive to do that. And how long are you going to do it? For a year, two years, three years? You know, record shows that many individuals have been under surveillance, and then as soon as the surveillance stops, they actually engage in a terrorist act. So I've just been arguing that realistically, for at least for some of these people, we're going to have no option. We either do nothing with them, or we better figure out some programming. Uh, if you do prosecute, and as you mentioned, that's pretty tough to do, but if you do, what's the penalty? What, what, what happens then? They're in prison. If they're not being uh, rehabilitated outside of jail, how are they going to be rehabilitated inside of prison? Well, and they won't be. In Canada right now, there are no programs available to, I think there's about 13 individuals. It's starting to change a bit now because we actually have some individuals that have been released on parole. But uh, 13, I think, overall Canadians have been actually, uh, you know, sentenced to prison for terrorist offenses, and none of them have received any programming to rehabilitate them at all. Uh, they're usually not, the, see, the irony is they're not usually the kind of candidates even available for conventional rehabilitative programming, because as Corrections Canada's own research, published research shows, they're not like the rest of the prisoners. They don't have drug addiction problems. They don't have alcohol problems. They really haven't been involved in crime before. They're better educated. They're actually model prisoners. They tend to you know, follow all the rules and regulations well. So the limited programming available is really not appropriate for them. And uh, there are many of them until recently were kept in, kept in strict segregation, meaning 23 hours a day in their cell, which meant they couldn't attend programming even if they wanted to. So we're not doing anything. We're just letting them serve out their terms and then releasing them under normal parole conditions. How long would these terms be? Well, most of the people have life terms. I mean, it varies from case to case, but 
even a life term, given that they're model prisoners. In mm. fact, most of them are getting out after about 7 to 12 years. How do you rehabilitate somebody like this? How do you tell, how can you tell if, if they've gone too far, past the point of no return? Well, it's very, very tricky, but there are programs in place in, as I say, United Kingdom and in definitely in Denmark and in some places in Germany because they have a decentralized system. So like in Berlin, the city of Berlin, there's programs in place where they use, are using assessment tools, but mainly, of course, you have to get them into contact with mentors, with people who can interact with them at some length of time, really get to know them, and get a sense of if they... You're not going to do any of this unless someone's already expressing some degree of you know remorse and desire to change their ways. Mm-hmm. That's what opens it up. And then you have to assess, is this sincere? Well, it's as in the case of any criminal, that assessment of sincerity is a difficult one, but one we're asked to make all the time in parole systems and in in courts in sentencing people as well. Uh, How are they becoming radicalized? Are we spending too much time focusing on this end of the problem and and not at the beginning? Yeah, no, that's the real key. I mean, I just came back from uh, Berlin, a conference, a G20 conference, and so all the countries from the G20 countries were there. It was on preventing radicalization, and there's an overwhelming consensus from most of those countries that we have to really stress the prevention side. We have to start getting some national programming going, educational programming, outreach programming, you know, with some degree of sophistication to get at young people who potentially are in a position of being vulnerable and equip them to resist these kinds of ideas, to be more critical in their thinking, to if they are starting to get into trouble, to be able to have access to mentors and to uh, uh, psychologists and people who can help them. This is being done. It's been done for over a decade in England. It's been done for almost a decade now in Denmark and, as I say, in a few scattered other places. And these things are hard to measure. How do you measure that you successfully turned a kid away from radicalizing? Hmm. But the fact of the matter is they've dealt with thousands of kids. And I suppose if I had to be really uh, sort of provocative, as I say, could it possibly have hurt the odds are it probably has to have helped for some of them. And if it's even diverted a handful of kids, it's probably worth the effort, I would think. Uh, you talked about radicalization happening all over the world. Is there a common denominator in this sort of rehabilitation? Is there something we're learning from all of these different examples? There's a common thread here? Well, I think the thing that's coming out, uh, it sounds a bit amorphous, but it really seems to be the one thing that keeps coming out. I mean, we're essentially dealing with young people really struggling with significant identity issues, right? Every case is slightly different. The young people who feel particularly maybe trapped between a traditional culture of their parents and the culture of the new land in which they've arrived as a young person, and they, they, many people experience that pressure and manage to work their way through it, but these are young people who don't. And they've, because they feel particularly tormented by these tensions, they're looking for quick, strong, simple solutions, dramatic solutions. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's readily available online through jihadist recruitment efforts, right, to give them a kind of adventurous role they could take on. Now, that can harden with interaction with other people into a much more, you know, dangerous, true, negative identity, a destructive identity. But as its origins were in basically a real hard struggle with who am I and how can I have an important role to play in the world, 
the key seems to be get in there when they're having that trouble and give them an alternative way of conceiving how they could do that. Alternative way in which they could go out and, and even help their fellow Muslims if that's their overriding concern. Then there are so many other ways in which they could take a role of leadership and have impact on their community. Whose responsibility is that? Um, how do you get to them before they are radicalized? Uh, community leaders, parents, who, whose responsibility is it? That's the key, and this is the other thing that there's a consensus on, is it's really got to be a grassroots phenomenon. It's got to be local communities that undertake these, this effort. There's all kinds of reasons for that, but the main reason is they're the ones that really know what's going on, and you ne- have to have trust. You have, a, have to have a situation where individuals trust the people running the program, and they're going to trust the people who have already been delivering other good things to their community in terms of you know, recreation programs, anti-drug programs, anti-gang programs, things of that nature. But, of course, those local uh, people, they don't have the resources, so it's a responsibility of larger levels of government to help provide funding, guidance, uh, expertise to help them, training, things of that nature. But the programs need to be run by the people who are aware of what's actually happening in their municipality. Those are the kinds of programs that are, have been most successful, the few that exist around the world. That's how they're most successful. In England, they have 50 of these programs running. So, you know, we're talking about 50 different municipal centers that have agreed to get involved and run these programs. Police have to be involved because, of course, there could be a dangerous component. But the idea is to keep the police component as minimal as possible, only kind of in the background in case you've got an individual that you're just convinced this is, they've, they've gone too far down the path. Yeah, when you talk to experts about this and uh, experts that are involved in urban city gangs, the uh, the recruitment it's it's all pretty much the same. What can we learn uh, from about this radicalization, or what can we uh, learn from urban gang radicalization and 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 how they uh, drag seemingly disenfranchised people into this? How can we draw a parallel between that and and this sort of radicalization? It almost sounds very similar. It is very similar, and and it's similar in the sense of the process, right? I mean, of sort of the stages of a young, what a young person would go through, and some of the ambition and desires that are getting played upon are similar. There are marked differences, and so of course the key difference would be, ironically, the kids that go into for terrorism are actually being driven by a moral imperative. They aren't getting into terrorism because they want to do bad things to people. They're getting drawn into terrorism because they think they're engaged in some great act of crusade for good. They think that they're fighting for a cause. Where, of course, youth getting involved in gangs is more about the immediate gratification of themselves and power and status amongst their friends. But there is you know, some of that for both. The research comparing the two is really surprisingly very preliminary, and there's only a little bit of work that's been done. A study actually just came out like just a month ago, actually saying that the parallels aren't as strong as people think, but I haven't had a chance to actually read it. So there's definitely stuff to be learned there, though, because in the United States, one of the best programs that has been formally evaluated by outside authorities 
is operating in Los Angeles. That was started by the police chief in Los Angeles, and it directly built off their really successful anti-gang program. And he said, let's just adapt this and turn it to issues of radicalization. And from what I've read and from the external evaluations, yes, of course, there's hitches, but it's really been remarkably successful. So there's definitely something to be developed there. You talked about the different philosophies, cultures behind each one, and with terrorism, it's more of a belief. How do we separate religious beliefs from militant extremism? Yeah, this is a a tricky question, and I I won't claim to be as expert as the practitioners that are actually trying to do this, but clearly one of the things that keeps cropping up over and over again is that we're talking young people. They have a fairly naive and limited understanding of their own religions. So part of it is even just getting them to say, look, I respect your anger. I respect why you're upset. I respect your desire to become a more true you know, exponent of your, uh, of your religious beliefs. But let's take a look at some of the content of these beliefs. Let's take a look at some of these famous, you know, some of these passages you like to cite from the Quran because you read it somewhere. Let's get the context. Let's understand in a richer sense what's going on in your religion. The little bit of turnaround that has happened for Canadians in prisons that a number of the members of the Toronto 18 have successfully turned around their lives, but it's been because of their interactions with uh, the Muslim chaplains from one-on-one dialogue about what it means to be a Muslim. How do you deal with that when it's all open to impression? I mean, just radicals will use religion to justify yeah. their their violence. Yeah, no, it's very tricky. Uh, I don't have a magic bullet. If you... In the British program, which is you know quite elaborate and involves all schools and all teachers uh, throughout the entire country, if you watch the really quite remarkably good uh, training videos, interactive training videos, uh, online learning units that they've developed for teachers, they stress one simple point engage in conversation. If you see a young person who you think is moving down the wrong track in any kind of extremism, let's say into a neo-Nazi movement as well, then talk to them. Don't just avoid them. Don't just condemn them. Engage them in, in conversation because it's the same as if it were like a family issue or a crime issue. Get them talking. Once you get them talking, then you may have to report them somewhere and seek to get some higher professional help But they say the initial thing is opening channels of communication. Sounds terribly old-fashioned, but apparently it's been very effective in the British context. Lauren Dawson is with us, professor at the University of Waterloo. Um, As you mentioned, and as people have said in the past, we just may not have the resources to keep our eyes on everyone. That being said, uh, Goodale has said there's somewhere between 180 and 190 uh, who have a connection to uh, any parts of these uh, uh, parts of the world, Syria, Iraq, etc., as well as 60 foreign fighters who have returned to Canada. Is that manageable, that number? I, I don't think those numbers are really accurate or we should be thinking in those terms. The, the 180, we don't know the time limit, like what is that over the last 10 years, the last two years. We don't know what the nature of the connection uh, is with any kind of terrorist activity. We do know that it includes uh, people who have uh, visited Lebanon and through family connections have a bit of a tie to Hezbollah or may have given some money to Hezbollah in the past. So if that individual returns to Montreal, 
Do we sure we're not happy that they gave some money to a prescribed group, but do we think they're a serious threat to Canada? Probably not, you know, on, on the grander scheme of things. So I think the numbers of individuals that really are people who've gone and engaged in violent terrorist activities is way smaller. And I would bet the number that have returned from Syria or Iraq that have been actively involved with jihadist groups is as small as a dozen in Canada, but certainly not 60. So I think the numbers are more manageable, but the irony is even if it's like a dozen or 20 people, that will exhaust the resources of uh, uh, police to be involved in surveilling them all the time, and we'll probably only be able to convict a handful. So you're still going to end up with some left that you either do nothing with or start to do some kind of programming with. So I really wish they would clarify these numbers. I'm going by what the CSIS director originally said when those numbers were first announced to a parliamentary committee, I think in February of 2016, and there are very vague comments. I've asked government officials to clarify the numbers and never received any clarification. Are you, uh, are you confident the Canadian government has a handle on this? I have a conf I'm confident the Canadian government is doing about as well as could be expected at this time. I really say, it's, as I say, it's regrettable that we're late in getting uh, programming going for both preventing radicalization that could be adapted to some rehabilitative work. Um, that's I really have to say, I've said it before, and it's true, is that the previous Conservative government showed no interest in doing this, even though almost all our allies, including the United States and the UK, were moving in this direction far more significantly than we were. We chose not to do it. The Liberal government has recognized the need to do this, created the new office to do it, but they're getting a slow start. Uh, if a conviction rate is low, is it even worth spending the money uh, once the horse is out of the barn? Well, I mean, I think the, the overall rule is if you can possibly get the evidence and you can prosecute, then of course we should, because these people have, in a minimal sense, they have, even by traveling to Syria and being involved with a, a terrorist organization, they've broken the law. So in a minimal sense, you think, well, why can't we convict them all? But most courts are not going to seriously convict them for just that, and there are ways in which good defense lawyers could cast a lot of doubt on what it really meant because they merely went to Syria. So in the few instances where we can have hard evidence that would convince a court that the individual is actually engaged in some, you know, has engaged in the massacre of, village, uh, of the villagers in Syria or something, you know, really a graphic crime, then, of course, we absolutely have an obligation, you know, a moral, ethical, and legal obligation to prosecute those individuals. And in a sense, everyone should be prosecuted to a degree, but it's just not realistic. So I'm certainly not advocating, you know, we should have moral outrage at what all these individuals have done, but moral outrage in itself is just not going to accomplish much in the long run. It's not going to protect us. The other thing we should realize is that if we could rehabilitate some of these individuals, ones who maybe actually didn't, weren't too heavily involved, are coming back genuinely disillusioned, they cannot work as incredible resources to help prevent other young people from mm. radicalizing because 
they have credibility. They've been there, they did it, they went, and now they regret their actions. That's going to be far more powerful in convincing a 16-year-old that maybe he should rethink things than some kind of, you know, contrived message coming from the federal government. Good point. Lauren Dawson has been with us, professor at the University of Waterloo, director of TSAS. Lauren, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Ontario PCs released their full campaign platform uh, this weekend at a convention. Uh, And Tom Adams, uh, I'm not sure where he's not happy about this, I think. Patrick Brown, here's what Tom tweets. Uh, Patrick Brown says, only problem with Kathleen Wynne's fake 25% hydro rate cut, meaning the cost of deferral and shifting, is that it doesn't go far enough. Brown wants to fix hydro by getting politicians more involved. Sound good to you? Let's bring in Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental consultant. He is with us now. Tom, what are your thoughts on this? It doesn't sound like you're happy. Well, I, I'm, you know, I was, I was no fan of, uh, of Kathleen Wynne's uh, electricity policies. Uh, and, you know, I had my fingers crossed that the upcoming election in 2018, we'd have an adult conversation about Ontario's electricity options, you know, our future. What are we going to do about this? I, you know, so I was watching with keen interest what uh, what the PCs were going to come up with, and holy smokes, um, uh, this is you know you, you sometimes hear this criticism that the the PCs are kind of angling for for liberal light, um, but this is not liberal light. This is liberal heavy. They they are they're, they they take Kathleen Wynne's electricity policies as the starting point, and say that they're going to take it one notch. Uh, you know, louder. So they, the, uh, they, so the, the first thing they do is they flip flop on their previous opposition to the government's uh, 25% rate scam plan. You, you know, this is the plan that they've got. They implemented. They started it back. It actually started to affect your bill in July. And, uh, and it takes the household power bill down by 25%, which sounds so good, mm-hmm. except that the whole thing is just smoke and mirrors. Yeah. You, you know, they're, they're, yeah, you're they're, just passing off the debt. So do you think, Tom, what he, what he should be doing is canceling that and just putting everybody's rate back to where it was? Well, like, Ontario has a whole lot of problems with our power system. Like, this, is, this, this system is just has just been ruined um uh it, 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 we're we, we've got some heavy lifting ahead so but, what can he do without breaking us even more well, and, and still make a result what, what should he be doing my point i think the starting point for any solutions for ontario's electricity problems is to start telling the truth about what's going on um uh, we, we we can't get out of this problem by by the, you know these these little tricks uh, of accounting of either shifting the cost from one pocket to the other, or deferring the costs or combinations of those two things, mm-hmm. which is that's exactly what Wynn had been doing, and Catholic, and, and you know the, the Patrick Brown wants to do it even more. So how does he so, want to do that even more? Explain to us what he wants to do. Okay, so he's got he's got a bunch of items in his electricity plan the first the two big ticket items um uh from a money point of view are to shift the hydro one dividend um 
directly to the household electricity bill. Right. Okay. That, you know, again, sounds sounds okay, mm-hmm. except that he's spending dollars twice. That money, the, the, the dividends that Hydro One produces that flow to the remaining shares that are held by the provincial government, you know, some of the shares have been sold, right? right. Um, uh, but of the, the shares that are in provincial government ownership, the, the, the dividends that are received by the provincial government flow to a crown corporation called Ontario Electricity Financial Corporation. Right. Every dollar of those dividends flows back to the ratepayer. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works today. Patrick Brown's big plan, you know, like the first element of his 12% rate cut on top of Kathleen Wynne's 25% rate cut is he's going to give that dividend back to the ratepayer. Mm-hmm. Hang on a second. Because he believes we, they're his money. They're, it's their money, right? We already get the money. Yeah. Um. Uh, so that's his starting point. His next big item, he's going to shift the cost of energy conservation programs from electricity ratepayers to taxpayers. Um, now, that's, you know, there, there is an argument that that's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, similarly, the Liberals... You know, um, uh, with their fair hydro plan, one of the ways they achieved the 25% rate reduction was they shifted costs for some of the social program elements of electricity cost from the ratepayer to the taxpayer. And I'm on side with that. That's right. that's all. I'm all, that's good public policy. You know, taxpayers should pay for taxpayer responsibilities, like like social service, for example, and ratepayers should pay for energy only. Right. Mm-hmm. That uh, so you know that's all cool, but it's just cost shifting. Brown calls that a savings. Right. This is, that's not being straight with people. That's not a savings at all. That's just shift. That's simply left pocket, right pocket kind of shifting. And around. what's his and what's his reasoning for doing that? What's the benefit to us? Well, <laughs> like his reasoning for doing it is. So that he can go to the door when he's campaigning and say I, he's got a better plan for your rates than Kathleen Wynne. My point is that in terms of if you look at how the impact of the, the, the Patrick Brown plan versus the Kathleen Wynne plan down the road 10, 20 years from now, by the time, you know, we've kind of worked out all the, the, the liabilities flowing through the power system, Kathleen Wynne's plan is better than Brown's. So uh, you think he should be paying more, uh, paying more attention to the debt and liability and paying that down? Yeah. So I, what, what, what I, I think the starting point for a, 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 you know a, a credible solutions for Ontario's power system are to 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 just be straight with people. Um, uh, it, it, the, the Kathleen Wynne's fake twenty five percent rate reduction is junk. Um, uh, it's not real. It's going to, you know, as the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer, both, uh, um, you know, disciplined, independent, professional officers of the legislature have correctly identified um, those that 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 25% rate cut that Pat Kathleen Wynne has, has got on our bills right now. That is actually costing us more. That's mm-hmm. not helping anybody. Mm-hmm. That's just adding to our cost, 
the PCs were absolutely right in condemning and not voting for that plan. They didn't vote for it. They were opposed to it. Now they're in favor of it. Now they're using that plan as the starting point for adding more smoke and mirrors. Uh, so good or bad, this plan, Patrick Brown's plan for the electrical, the electricity system, good it, or bad? It's worse than winds. And that's because why? That's because we, we're getting further away from telling people what's really going on. Mm. We further entrench the notion that that, that you, you, you don't like your power bill, you, you get your politician to give you some, some, some kind of crazy subsidy or accounting trip, trick. That, that's where we're going with this. The, you know, um, uh, the, the NDP are in favor of the 25% rate cut. They voted for it. Um, uh, it, it you know, the, the, the liberals have hitched their electoral wagon to this thing. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Up until Saturday, the PCs were all over the place agreeing with the Auditor General, agreeing with the Financial Accountability Officer. They were calling this thing a spade a spade. They, you know, they were saying that this uh, uh, Fair Hydro Plan is 25% rate cut is deceitful, dishonest. So, so what should the PCs have done in your mind? Okay, so what, uh, um, what I would have done you know, if it's up to me, mm-hmm. I, I would go out and explain to people that you're just being scammed by this 25% garbage. Right. Um, and uh, and, I, and I, I would assume that most people, and maybe I'm wrong to think this, but I would assume most have already figured that out in the sense that we all know what it's like, what we, you know, what happens when we refinance something. So I, I would guess that the majority of Ontarians get that. I don't know that it's very hard to explain to people, right? If you're putting your grocery bill... And your rent, you know, your 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 monthly rent and your power bill on your credit card, and you're not covering the monthly minimum balance. Yeah. it's gonna it's gonna hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I so sorry, I, inter- I interrupted, to Tom. That. So I interrupted. So what should he be doing? What would you like to have seen? So so the the, the real job, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, if we're going to stabilize our electricity situation, we have to go after the underlying costs. No more little tricky games. Um, uh, no more of this accounting garbage. So we got to go after the costs of generation. We got to go after the costs of transmission and distribution. We got to, we, you know, we got to get value for money audits on the conservation programs. How come the government is claiming that the conservation programs are also cost effective, and yet we're giving away free power to neighboring utilities because we got so so much surplus power? How do those two things go together? So there is, there are concrete steps that can be taken, but there's no magic bullet. There's no magic 37% across the board rate cut for the household you know, uh, electricity bill that is responsible and honest with people. Uh, can he do all of this without raising rates? Like, you know, many have said you can't reverse this plan. It will end up costing us more. So, therefore, he would have to go into the next election raising rates, which would even make it harder on Ontarians. So, really, does he have a choice here? Look, you know, the the cross-the-board rate cut that that Kathleen Wynne had implemented, 
this is um, you know this this flows to the you know to the owners of the million dollar real estate you, you know the people with the jacked up pension plan and all the you know there are some people in our society that don't need public subsidies with their electricity bills and that's cool you know um we should be if you know we, we should be take, taking the 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 social service element of electricity cost you know we got to make sure that people are that electricity costs are not driving people out of their homes. We should be focusing our attention on the on the low income and the people that are having the problems, and so we can like apply the 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 the, 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 the social safety net where it's needed. This cross the board um, uh, uh, subsidy program paid for by future ratepayers and future taxpayers—that's garbage. And it, you know, so you think the, you, your opinion is is that uh, Patrick Brown is playing the se- same shell game? He's just using different shells and different. He's using he, any of the same shells. Uh, because he says twelve, uh, an additional twelve percent more off hydro bills if elected. So where's that twelve percent coming from? What well, is it, what is that? What's it, it, what's he doing to give us twelve percent back? Biggest two items are cost shifting, right? Uh, um, uh, and does that put us farther in debt by doing it? Well, the, what the cost shifting does, you, you know, it, um, uh, it, it, of course, it, it puts more pressure on the provincial deficit. Um, um, <laughs> oh, by the way, you know, when when Kathleen Wynne introduced the 25% rate cut and the Auditor General came along and said, hang on a second, that's going to hit the deficit, the PCs came along and they said, you know, the Auditor General's right about this. The, 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 the losses from the 25% rate cut belong in the deficit calculation. But in Patrick Brown's plan... For the for the you know for how he's going to manage the budget and the deficit implications of all his promises, he accepts and endorses Kathleen Wynne's plan to hide the cost of the twenty five percent rate cut off out of the provincial deficit. Mm-hmm. You know, like so. Why do this? Why take this angle? Well, well, I mean, you know, I guess some pollsters, you know, started whispering in his ears. Um, uh, you know, the, the, well, at the, the end of the day, Tom, I mean, you know, whatever, however we got to where we are with our electricity system, we're paying what we're paying. Uh, the premier has punted that off another uh, 10 years to 30 years. And, and so now uh, our, our grandkids are going to be paying for this. If you're a politician, how do you reverse that? You know, you, you go back in and say, I want you to reelect me. But when you reelect me, uh, your bills are going to go up because we got to pay this off sooner than later. Yeah, well, I'm not a politician, right? Um, uh, <laughs> I know, but we're all we're all ratepayers. That's the problem. Yeah. My, my, my concern is how is this going to work for ordinary ratepayers a few years from now, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you know, Patrick Brown's plan is to get more politicians more deeply involved in making the heavy decisions about our electricity future. He wants to get rid of the last vestiges of public utility regulation. He's just declared that to be red tape. He wants to have more politicians guiding the long-term energy planning. You know, this is just more of the same. This is the, the, 
we've gone down this road of, a, of building a more and more politicized power system for just, the, you know, for more than the last 10 years. And Brown's plan is to just keep adding it up, keep more, keep doing more. So in your mind, he should be more transparent and dismantling some of this. Oh, look, we got to stop digging the holes. Yeah, Ontario's power system... Why would he just not say that then? Because, again, I can't see how that wouldn't resonate with voters. I, 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 look, I, you know, I, everybody... Because he, wants to be able, because he wants to be able to say that, you know what, over and above these great savings that Kathleen Wynne has given us by uh, refinancing the loan down the road, I'm going to give you 12% more. You're going to have to ask him. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't... I can, I can, I've got no explanation for this. So you're disappointed. I, I'm I'm outraged. I'm outraged. I, you know I you know I was hoping that we were going to have an adult conversation about electricity in for 2018. It's not happening, man. Again, I I I, I don't see the need for him to do this. So uh, you know you're you're making it sound like it's political suicide. Um, you know, uh, this has been a huge, huge issue with Ontarians for for years now. Um, but again, I, I'm not sure what he's what he's doing and and how he can do much different than what he is doing and then get elected. Uh, you know, my my sense of it is that the 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 PCs did not put in the hard work of figuring out what's actually going on with the electricity fire. How can they not when you and I are talking about it all the time? Uh, you know, but, but if, if, if the depth of your research is to just rely on a few newspaper editorials and, and, and kind of try to keep up with the news cycle, um, uh, and if you're not doing the digging and you don't follow the numbers, you know, and everything catches you by surprise, then you end up coming up with these, 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 shallow, fluffy, um, uh, feel-good kind of plans. You know, I, I really think so you think, he's just right, you think he's just robbing Peter to pay Paul so he can say 12% more off your hydro bills than oh, what yeah. you're getting now? Yeah. That's, that's exciting. I mean, it, 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 it's in black and white, and it's planned. This is like, he, he, like Kathleen Wynne's plan is cost-shifting and cost-deferral, and Brown's plan is more cost-shifting and cost-deferral. How will this fly with Ontarians, do you think? Uh, I'm not the politician, you know, I'm, and I'm sure there's some pollsters that, that said, uh, you know, to him that he's got to, you know, he's got to have something to sell at the door and the 12% rate cut is about the right. You, you, that's like the other thing that's so phony about all this, right? The 25%, why wasn't it 24% or 26% that Kathleen Wynne introduced, right? It, it, well, it was 25% because it sounds nice. Yeah. You know, 20, 22.3% maybe it's not quite enough or something. And then Brown comes along. Well, why, why was Brown's plan 12%? Well, why wasn't it 11 Why wasn't it 55%? Right? Because well, because you know, because the communications consultant said that the twelve percent is about the right flavor or some damn thing. Tom it's, Adams has been with us, independent energy and environmental consultant. Of course, the PC party releasing its platform over the weekend, and part of that electricity. Tom's still not impressed. Tom, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. 
Right on, Scott. Thanks so much. Keep fighting for us. Okay. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked about this case. Uh, remember, this came up last March. Uh, accused Ancaster Yahoo hacker Kareem Baratov is uh, going to appear in a California court, and the whole idea is to change his plea. Uh, the man, of course, uh, accused in a massive hack of Yahoo emails. Uh, initially, uh, Baratov accused of hacking 80 Yahoo accounts faces 20 years in prison. And uh, this uh, appearance is in regard to scheduling, into rather uh, changing the plea from not guilty to guilty. He was arrested in Hamilton in March under the Extradition Act after the U.S. authorities indicted him and three others, two of them uh, allegedly Russia's Federal Agency Service uh, members, uh, and of course computer hacking, economic espionage, among other crimes. To talk more about all of this, Ari Goldkind is with us, Toronto defense lawyer, and is on the line with us now. Ari, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's great to be on with you, Scott. Uh, why now? Why this change of plea at this point? I think there was some writing on the wall. We've talked about this before. He basically incriminated himself with some very interesting social media posts. I think, you know, we'll get into the weeds here. There was about a 40 to 60 page indictment uh, issued by the states to get him uh, back out of Hamilton, Canada, down to San Francisco. The evidence against him was very compelling. And the third point, which I think is in play here, but everybody is very tight-lipped about it, I think he's going to roll on others and be quite helpful to the government in exchange for a reduced deal. Uh, when will we know more on that? When will we know if that happened? I think we'll probably know more tomorrow. He's got good lawyers in the States. He had some uh, issues here that didn't go his way legally, and I'll leave it at that. But down there, I don't expect him, or quite frankly, any accused person, you, me, anybody, God forbid we get charged with something, to ever enter into a guilty plea sort of willy-nilly without having some idea of what the stakes are, the potential punishment is, and particularly given the haste, the speediness of this plea, Scott, it suggests to me that he really took his own temperature, so to speak, and said, I better play ball with the authorities if I ever want to breathe normal air again. Is this expected considering he waived his right to extradition? He wanted to get this moving. Yeah, he, he, again, and the extradition thing is, is a very complicated but simple issue. Many misunderstood it because they thought, oh, he's going to fight it for two years. The only people that would have benefited, and I mean this with no disrespect to my field, are the lawyers because he didn't have a chance on planet Earth of ever not getting sent down there, particularly to our closest allies. So I think he knew that there is some music to face. Why spend two more years in jail? Remember, he got denied bail, so he would just be languishing for another two years in a Canadian southern Ontario jail. So get down there, get a move on. And my sense is, remember, he's the only one arrested on this, Scott. So my sense is, and I'm not saying I'm right, but we'll hear more about this in the coming days, that he could be a very, very helpful source, because if you remember, as we always talk about in cases like this, follow the money, yeah. he sort of is the end of that trail. So how much, how valuable would the information he may be able to give, how valuable would that be? Well, I would think very valuable, because what people forget, because we really, you know, we sort of remember the pictures of him driving his fast, stupid cars on mm-hmm. the residential street, driving his neighbors berserk, and sort of being a pompous, yeah. you know, fill-in-the-blank. Really, this 
hacking that he was a part of, no matter how many accounts he specifically hacked, went into the hundreds of millions of dollars in damage and identity theft and compromising mm. of confidential information. So if he's a link that could say, who, here's who contacted me, here's where they are, here's all the bank account information, and I'm going to cooperate and potentially be a witness either in the courtroom or quietly, that's pretty valuable to federal authorities. Remember, Scott, when these investigations are not domestic limited to the states, they're overseas, they're internet, they're online, or as George Bush would call it, the interweb. So he's he pleads guilty. Does that mean no trial and now a plea deal? When will we know what he gets as far as a sentence for the information he's he's given? No trial. So the trial there there will be no trial. We will either know his sentence tomorrow because it's a fait accompli and sort of arranged behind the scenes, or it will be put over for a period of time to give the judge and the parties more time to come to a sentence. But brass tacks. You're an accused with a lawyer. You don't say guilty if you don't know whether you're getting six months in jail hmm. or 75 years. You'd have to be a complete, again... So how much of a reduction could he get, Ari? I mean, we, you know, we're talking here 20 years. Could he be out in a couple of years? Very, very significant reductions. And the only thing that people should know is that the U.S. sentencing regime is massively, massively different than Canada. He could be sentenced to 300... I mean, I'm exaggerating here. But, you know, you could get a 200-year sentence for what he did in the States when you never murdered anybody. But here in Canada, you can go out and do god-awful things and be out on parole in 10 years. So their sentencing guidelines, Scott, are much, much more serious than ours in most circumstances. Okay, so he pleads guilty. He's convicted. We'll have to wait and see uh, what the sentence is and, and the information that he handed over. That being said, when it comes time to serving this, what sort of facility will he be servicing, uh, um, uh, will he be sentenced to, and what are the chances of him coming back here to sentence or, uh, or to serve a sentence? There, there is a treaty where you can request to serve the sentence in your country of origin. I would expect that request to go out. I can't imagine him being in a maximum security jail there, but U.S. authorities have been known to do very bizarre things like that. You know, we put the Conrad Blacks and the other sort of white-collar criminals, which this has to be sort of deemed. He's not a rapist, murderer, Weinstein, or something else. He should be serving it at a minimum security. But, you know, when you have the people that he's in bed with, you know, Russian intelligence and other things, he would be a target, particularly if he received a discounted sentence for cooperation. So if you've seen Goodfellas or all these other programs where you disappear into witness protection, he'd have to be somewhere where he's protected if he is rolling over, which is just an assumption. Wow. This, so this has got a whole different angle to it. Uh, Ari Goldkind has been with us, Toronto defense lawyer. I know you got to run, Ari, but thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. We'll chat Pardon. again on this. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.